Well, good afternoon, everyone. This is Rob Hunt coming to you from somewhere deep in Long Island Sound today. I uh, hope everyone's having a great summer day. Uh, I'm super stoked because not only is it the final day of Dead & Co. tour today, but we're also joined by a person who has made live music that much more fun for all of us. Uh, we'll certainly go through kind of everything he's done in the business. But uh, for all of you out there that are on archive.org on re-listen and really try to get the best mixes uh, of not just the Grateful Dead, but you know multiple other bands as well. Uh, then you're very familiar with Charlie Miller's work. And I'm really excited that Charlie Miller is joining us today to talk about all the things that he's done, not just you know in terms of uh, remastering uh, soundboards and audience tapes, but also in terms of what he's done with Steve Kimmock. So it should be a really, really fun show today. But uh, before we get into that, I wanted to say hello to my co-host, Larry Michigan. Larry, it's great to be back with you. And uh, how's, how's your day going, man? Great, Rob. It's wonderful to have you on the show. It always is. we got lots of great stuff to talk about. And uh, people get tired of just hearing me blab on all the time. So this gives us another good opinion and uh, point of reference for some of the things we're going to get into, including our guest today. Very, very excited about that. And uh, you were able to reach out and, and get Charlie on the show. So let's dive in. Charlie, a pleasure to meet you, man. So happy to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I'm, I'm excited that there's other people that, that like to talk about this stuff as much as I do. <laughs> so, so, Charlie, I, I got to say, man, when I think about, you know, the, sort of the archivists out there, I always think there's not just David Lemieux, but I think there's Charlie Miller. And I mean that in the most complimentary way that, you know, David obviously gets the accolades for, for being the person that's handpicked by the organization. But in terms of like the, um, the taper community, I don't think there's anyone that's got more respect out there than you do for the work that you've done. And I have no idea how you find the time in the day with everything else you do to have remastered as many shows as you have uh, and as brilliantly as you have to the point that, you know, as I said to Larry, I won't even usually like look at something unless I know that's got the Charlie Miller seal of approval on archive or on re-listen, which is I, for years, I got my soundboards from tons of people. I had the 30 or 40 go-tos. I knew exactly who I was sending XL2s to, you know, nowadays it's all digitized. It's it's kind of Miller or Bust for me, so like I'm super super stoked you're here with us. Right on, man. So as I've told you, we kind of we kind of cover different shows today, and obviously I was going to pick a show that you did the remastering on. There's no way I was <laughs> doing the one that didn't. But as we are now uh, a solid, I think close to um, close to 50 years. I think we're 47 years past uh, July 16th, 1976 from uh, from the Orpheum. Uh, a really, really fun show, you know, kind of one that uh, I think we've all spent our time in the Bay Area, so one that we all you know, can appreciate being in SF. But uh, why don't we listen to our first clip, and then we'll dive in and start asking you some questions. Does that sound cool? Sounds great. say stronger than dirt or milk in the turkey or whatever you want to call it and i, I picked that one because i don't think we've ever covered it on this show larry of all the songs that we've we've you know put clips of and i love the interplay obviously between phil and uh and garcia and garcia is almost playing like a reggae scratch riff on that so it's uh it's totally different than what you expect to hear from garcia it's not scaly it's just kind of you know a little scratch um like mini just 
strums on that, which is a really cool sound. But I don't think that, you know, like sort of the Blues Raleigh like era, I don't think Milk and, Milk and the Turkey really gets all that much credit. But there's some really fun versions in 76 and 77. Yeah, for sure. You know, it, look, it's they created it, so it's out there. And, uh, you know, probably didn't get played very often. In fact, I don't ever recall it being played at all at any time when I started seeing the dead. So pretty much the 80s and into the 90s. But, you know, when the album came out, that, King Solomon's Marbles, I mean, you know, Phil started playing, I think, King Solomon's Marbles again a few times. And, you know, it's just fun music to listen to. I really enjoy it. And, uh, you know, I get it. It's a little more formal and organized and complicated than the, the freestyle they like to just kind of come out and jam with. But certainly when they take the time to do it, and this is a great sample of it, it, it adds a whole other dimension to the show, I think. It's pretty cool. It's hard to believe. It's been 47 years. You know, it just... It's just so long ago. It makes me feel so old. Charlie, when did you first start uh, going to shows? I started listening to Grateful Dead in 77, 78, and I started going to shows in 79. It, it, it's kind of funny how it happened. Um, I went to I went to school at Rob Bleedstein. Oh, Rob Bleedstein. And um, we, all, we all know Rob Bleedstein. Sure. He, We've had him on the show. Yeah, yeah. He's been a guest of ours. Yeah, he's, he's, uh, he was in the same class as my sister, who was two years older than me. And he came over to my house to, with some friends to hang out with my sister and some other people. And then they split. And when he left, they were hanging out in the backyard. And he left this Maxell cassette back there and i noticed it started to rain so i went out and i grabbed the tape so his tape wouldn't get destroyed and i listened to it and that was the the king biscuit flower hour <laughs> um broadcast of ten six seventy seven, and that was like the first thing i heard that and my friend uh forced me to listen to live dead which at the time i complained about <laughs> sure we all did yeah, the all, first time we heard all it. the feedback yeah yeah it's just like you know it's this really long song i was kind of you know get on with it type you know music back then but uh i just yeah so 77 to 79 was the formative years for me but in 79 um my first show was November 2nd, 1979, and my birthday is November 3rd. So when we walked out of the show, I had just turned 16. And that was just a pretty cool way to start the whole thing. So you were Midland from the beginning. You weren't, you weren't Keith and Donna's final days of 79. Yeah. No, you know, I never never saw Keith. Um, Donna was, was with Zero, you know, so I worked with her a whole bunch of times over the years and she was even at my wedding. She's just an awesome person. I love her. Wow. She actually sang at my wedding with Steve Kimmock, which is just kind of funny, but, um, wow. but I never saw her with the Grateful Dead. My first show was supposed to be one ten seventy nine, and my friends just never picked me up and took me and, you know, looking back, I should really go and kill them for that. That was, that was, you know, that's funny. Our old co-host, his uh, first show is two fifteen seventy nine from Springfield, which has that amazing uh, Miracle Shakedown transition jam. Uh, that's, that's a cool one. It's such a good one, and uh, so he always, you know, kind of like let us know that that he was the older statesman in, in this group. Because I think uh, Larry, your first show was eighty three. Is that right? Eighty two. Eighty two. Yeah, and that was eighty eight. Oh, those are. Yeah. I have right next to me audience cassette masters from those shows that had never circulated. And some guy sent me his tapes and I just was listening to them the other day. Wow. And they'll be coming out soon. Okay, good. I, I, it's hard to find a good copy of that show. I love those shows. It was great. It's a, it's a tough situation. You're recording on right, you know, right off the water there and just the wind and um, just the humidity and the, and everything. It just, it really makes it tough, but you know, um, when Joni Walker copied Dan Healy's tape, 
it ended up being an audience recording. He didn't even copy the soundboard. He just had an audience for some reason, wow. which we don't know about. So it's one of those things like, where, where is the soundboards, man? Wow. No, absolutely. It was a great way to break it all in. My buddy Mikey took me out there. We had a ball, you know, ate some good stuff and saw God. Did crazy fingers bust out? I mean, geez. Oh, wait, you went in 82? Yeah. That, yeah, that was a crazy fingers bust yeah. out. That's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah, I didn't see it till the garden in the fall, which was pretty fantastic, but... I always love that song. So you just brought something up that I got to jump right into. So people send you like their masters and just say like, Hey, go to town on this thing. And what's your process from, from the time you get a tape to, uh, to the time that we end up seeing it on archive? You know, in the last probably 15 years, I've received like no exaggeration, like way, way, way over 10,000 masters, whether they've been dads, PCMs or cassettes, you know, oh and, and yeah, it's crazy. And that doesn't even include all the stuff that I got from when I got Don Pearson's collection with all the soundboard masters in there. I mean, that was a couple of thousand tapes right on its own. Um, it's like, you know, they just say, please, you know, do your thing and I'll transfer them. I'll digitize them and, you know, we'll pitch correct it because, you know, it's analog. Sometimes things are really fast or really slow. And if there's, you know, usually there's a tape flip somewhere during music, even if it's in drum space, you know, or sometimes it's just in a bad spot, you know, yeah. um, we, we patch the flips. And if you want your patch to work, you uh, the patch source and the main source need to both be at the same pitch. Otherwise, it sounds like the caution patch from the live dead box set, you know, <laughs> you know, one second you go in this way and all of a sudden it's just this jarring, you know, but, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, in all, in all fairness, I, I wasn't always doing it as well as I am now. I started probably about 17, 18 years ago, really getting OCD about making every little thing right. But there was there was a point where I had so many masters and I just wanted to just get them out. So I just kind of just got them out. But, you know, it's, you got to track marks, fix levels, whatever it was, because 99 percent of the time, the person taping it was was usually high. Right. So you, you saw your first show in 79. When did you start taping or focusing on taping? 80, 83. Well, I started <laughs> in 1978. Me and my sister, I grew up on Long Island and me and my sister went and saw the band Boston at uh, Nassau Coliseum. And I sure. was like 30. 35th row on the floor, standing on a chair, holding up a little Radio Shack recorder. <laughs> and uh, and I recorded 112478 off of WNEW that night when I lived in Paul Washington. But um, I was I did this spring tour 82, and I, I had a recorder, and I was going to bring it with me and decided not to. I just wanted to have fun. Spring tour 83, a couple of shows into the tour, I was um, – what was it? UVM. Yeah, 83. April 13th, 1983 in Burlington. I was sitting... Yeah, at the Patrick Gym. Yeah, I was sitting right in front of the board, and there was literally a, a, a chain of cassette decks, D5s, that went all the way around me. Actually, it was Nakamichi microphones, and this guy had a reel-to-reel, -reel, and there was a bunch of D5s patched out of it, and they said, do you want to patch in? And I was like, man, I wish I had a deck. So on the way to the next show in Rochester, I stopped and I bought a D6, and uh, taped the rest of the tour, and uh, you know it's kind of started from there. So it's uh, four fifteen eighty three is when it started. And so did you ever get to the point where you're uh, able to pass off eight balls of blow to Healy and patch directly in, or that never happened for you? 
No, no, I would have been, you know what? I would have honestly kept the blow and just been happy with my audience. <laughs> you know, I was, yeah. Plus, I didn't even know. It never occurred to me to even ask him and that that, that was a thing because I didn't know back then. Um, at Cal Expo in 91, I was talking to Healy before the show. We were smoking, smoking. Uh, I had pounded pot, so me and him were getting high, you know, outside the, the taping section before the show. And I was asking him about the sound problems in the beginning of the Vegas show the week before. And he was telling me what happened with Santana's sound guy leaned on the board and messed up some settings. And that's why the delay stacks weren't on and half the PA wasn't on. And it was all this other stuff. And, and I was standing there holding my, my D5. And I was getting ready to patch it into my microphones. And he just stood there and looked at me. And he looked at the deck. And he looked at me like he was shocked. Why was I not asking for a board patch? And, you know, it just never even occurred to me that it's just something you can do. And I, I just went and plugged into my microphones and, you know, now I got the soundboard masters of the whole year, which is funny. But he ended up getting in trouble for that, for that, like not soon after that, right? I mean, like 92, 93, he was a... Uh... In, in 93, the two shows in, uh, at the, what's the, the in uh, Chapel Hill. Yeah, the Dean Smith Center yeah. shows. Yeah, yeah, those shows. I did the, I did the, the uh, Nassau Coliseum run on that tour. But um, I don't know if he got in trouble as much as people say he did. I don't know. I think, you know, I, I bet at that point, I think they were all probably just so sick of each other, you know, because I know there was a lot of, I always used to hear that there was a lot of complaints from various band members about various things in the mix that, you know, Bobby didn't like the stuff Healy did with the vocals and felt he wasn't in, in you know, this person wasn't in the mix enough or this or that. And then somebody told me that. They had heard, they had always thought that because Healy's a musician in his own right. And he's a great guy. And I learned a lot from working with him uh, when we did some shows with Dark Star Orchestra. Um, but, you know, people told me that he, he wanted to be up there being the lead singer. And I just, I thought that was absurd. You know, I just never, never saw that in him. You know, why would anybody want, I'd be, I'd be so happy just mixing these guys. And, but, you know, how many, after 20 plus years, you got to, get a little burnt of it hey charlie how long are you on uh with dso for you know in 2000 i've been friends with them in 2003 kimok did a festival at hookahville and dso played right either right before us or right after us i don't remember what it was and um after no it was they played after us because after our set we stayed around for their set the band left but me and ariel who we were touring we were started working with kimok at that point um, in 2002, we had no more shows and we had the RV with us and the band was, was just flying home. So they said, here, here's our, our itinerary. Here's two all access passes. Come finish the tour with us. And we had nothing to do. We had like two weeks to kill before Kimok tour started again. So we spent a few weeks on the road with them and we called up Kimok, had him come in and play a show with them. And they let me turn their stage into a recording studio. And, you know, it was just crazy, the stuff we got to do. And they even had me and Ariel sit in the next night. They played one of the early April 78 shows where they had the kitchen crew coming out during drums. They played, it was either 4-6 or 4-7-78, and they brought me and Ariel out, and we did a whole bunch of percussion with the drummers during that show. And uh, and then was it, you know, we just became really good friends. And, you know, me and Rob Eaton being tapers, we were just always talking about the tapes, and he was just constantly sending me dats you know um 
I'd come home from Kimok tour. There'd be like 20, 30 dads from Robbie Eaton waiting for me. And uh, in 2006, they played three nights at the Fillmore. And they had Jerry's guitar there, which was a big thing back then because everybody in the world hadn't seen it by then, you know. They had Brent's custom keyboard there. Brent's widow, is his, his wife was there. His daughter was there. Bob Weir was playing. Dan Healy was doing sound. It was like the closest thing to a dead show since Jerry had died. And um, they asked me to come in and record it. So I called up Betty and I asked her to come do it with me. And, and um, so me and Betty just... We multi-tracked the whole thing, and I had enough equipment to do Kimok, which is 24 tracks. DSO needs 48, because believe it or not, they have 24 tracks just with the drums, which is kind of crazy if you think about it. So Betty got some stuff from Bob Matthews, and, uh, and you know, I was just doing that. I uh, Healy was was doing sound and I think it was the first purely digital Healy soundboard recording because what I did was I plugged the laptop off the soundboard because it was they didn't have the USB things back then like they do now it was a little adapter thing I had and uh and he had said people had recorded his feeds but nobody had ever taken a digital out of a digital board so I made this this recording and uh it was kind of cool just seeing how he does things you know and it's 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 wild, man. Randomly, tell me if I'm crazy. I think you and I met in an airport one time because you had a DSO sticker or a, a Zero sticker on your case. Yeah. And you're in front of me or behind me in the uh, security line. I think I looked at you and said, we are everywhere or something to that effect. Said, probably, you know, so yeah. Did you, did you just come from this place? You said, no, I was just out with DSO. Uh, it, it was like there's a festival that was happening in uh, in that town. But, but you know, that was before I realized you lived in San Diego. Oh, yeah. You know what? They they do that 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 festival. It was Labor Day weekend, and they played um, – it was in 2006 and seven. and Kimok used to – they used to bring Kimok's band in there. And the weird – this is when – this is when um, Mark Karen had to leave Rat Dog to deal with his cancer. And Bob Weir – we're in the middle of Zero Tour, and Bob Weir called up Kimok and said, I need you to come play some shows. So one day I would be on Zero Tour with Kimok, and the next day I'd be on Rat Dog Tour with Kimok. And we were just bouncing back and forth. And in the middle of it, we managed to get a few days off from the Rat Dog thing to finish the Zero thing. And we did this festival with DSO. It was, it was, it was a four, it was a three day festival. But if you got there the day before, you know, when they were setting everything up, they did a whole set of just non-Grateful Dead stuff for the people who were there. And the coolest thing about this festival was on Monday, when everything was breaking down, it was Nelson Lake's quarry or some, whatever, Nelson Ledge's quarry. Uh, that's what it was. And uh, they didn't kick anyone out. You can stay as long as you want to spend the day, relax, recover from the whole thing. It was like people like us running it. So it was like the coolest nice. vibe. Nice. As opposed to Alpine Valley parking lot where they're kicking you out 10 minutes after the show is over. Yeah. You know, um, one of the shows I was at this past year with fish, they were, they were, they were kicking me out of the venue and I was breaking down my taping gear and the guy's like, what's taking you so long? I'm like, oh, I got a security guard that is interrupting me. <laughs> Won't allow, you know, if you guys just leave us all alone, we can just get out of here quicker. It's like, you know what Kimak always says, you know, we're like bees. You just leave us alone. You won't get stung. You know, just, we're, we're okay. We can do our own thing. We know what to do. The most of us, at least, we know what to do. We know how to get out of here and just... You know, them trying to hurry us up always slows us down. Are you still working with Fish? Oh, I don't work with Fish. I'm actually, I worked with, okay, I did this tour 
I'm still with Kimok. I've been with Kimok for like 21, 22 years now. But we did a tour in 2006. Actually, we did a show on 420 in New York City, and it was Rhythm Devils. And it sold out in like minutes, and they didn't even announce the lineup. They just said Rhythm Devils, and nobody knew what the lineup was going to be. And it was Mickey and Billy, and it was Steve Kimock, and it was Mike Gordon from Fish, and a couple of other random people there. And, you know, it sold out. Like I said, it was this really, really fantastic energy. So Mickey had the same manager as Kimock. And Mickey really liked my recording, so they did a, t a summer tour with this band, and they brought me along. We had a week of rehearsals in Trey's barn, <laughs> and you know, after after the week of rehearsals, we went back to Mike Gordon's house. We had a dinner party. We listened to some recordings and stuff, and you know, and we all hang out, hung out, and then we did the tour. And um, I became friends with Mike Gordon there, and you know, we were talking about Grateful Dead. And he said, I said, what was your first show? And he said, it's one of the five nights at Oakland, uh, Oakland Auditorium in December 1982. Well, I had Joni Walker's soundboard cassette masters of that run sitting at my desk at home. So when I got home, I sent him CDs of the whole run because I knew one of those would be the first show. So he gets in a car, his girlfriend, it's before they were married, he gets in his car and he starts driving from Vermont with the CDs. He calls me up a couple of days later. He's in Kentucky. They've been just driving nonstop listening to these discs. And he's like, I realize Kim Ock's playing there. Can you put me on the list? So we put him on the list and it was some festival that got rained out and flooded. So we never got to hook up. But while at his house, we talked about some polyrhythmic stuff because there's some really cool things going on where, you know, the drone's got this beat going, but there's other, other beats happening here at the same time. And so, and he mentioned some fish tune, and I didn't know what he was talking about because I was not into fish, just no clue. And he, he, he goes, you don't know fish? I said, I'm standing in the guy's kitchen. I'm like, oh, I'm so embarrassed. I'm like, no, I tried it. You know, I don't get it. And he said he understood that. And he's, you know, if you ever want to go to a show. Um, you know, I just saw my 100th show this past April. <laughs> I just kept going because these guys treat me so nice. I mean, they just treat me so well. Um, I show up, management comes over, are you okay, is there anything you need, you know, did you get in okay, was everything, you know, just your taper tickets, everything good, and then they, uh, they told me about the Baker's Dozen, you know, it's like, I might like it, and I went and did the Baker's Dozen, and I've seen like almost 100 shows just since the Baker's Dozen, so when I go, I'm friends with Chris Caroda. a lot of the Fish crew is, uh, was Kim Ox crew over the years, so I just know so many people there. So, you know, they, they, they let me put my mic stand. Chris will let me put it in his booth or something. And um, so, I you know, I'm when I'm taping, I'm taping for me. Or, or actually, I'm taping because my wife says I need to tape because there's a lot of people out there that want to hear my recording. So I should at least do it for them, for the community. My wife's a taper, too, by the way, I should mention. <laughs> That's awesome. So, you know, I kind of I kind of do the fish thing. It's, it's a me thing. You know, I'm not looking to work for them. Um, it's just kind of, you know, yeah. So so when you get tapes, when someone sends you a master and says, or sends you, you know, what, whatever it is you get in the mail, what's your process to take that and make it sound infinitely better, which you've done for, you know, thousands of uh, recordings? It's a lot of, a lot of people think that it's a lot of like the, the soundboards that, you know, there's something I'm doing that's making it better. 99% of the time is I have a better source tape to start with, you know, where I'll have the actual cassette where I can do a high resolution transfer instead of some old DAT that was done on it, someone's shitty DAC, you know, um, 
I'll, I'll align the head with the, I will do the azimuth adjustment. I have a knock CR7A. I, a couple of years ago, got the knock for $2,300. This thing looks so new. And it's kind of crazy that now they're going for like, like three grand, these knocks. But, um, you know, the CR7A has got the most natural sound. You, and, and it's also that pitch correction really makes things sound more accurate. Um, balancing the levels and it's the, the converters in my rack, the Tascam uh, DSD recorder is just, uh, the clarity is just insane. It's got a sample rate of 5.6 million as opposed to 44,100 of a CD, you know? So it really, DSD is the only digital format that will capture that analog warmth. And even when I'm dumbing it down to CD quality or 2496, you can still hear the difference. That's super cool. Um, yeah, I've always wondered because, you know, I, I think my my belief that, you know, David Lemieux is to the actual soundboard of the Grateful Dead, what you are to the taper section. Yeah, you know, I, I think that, you know. He's doing a great job. You know, there's a lot of people who have made some comments um, on my tour and said, oh, they wish that I had that job. Well, I'm glad I don't <laughs> because if you think about it, if I worked for the Grateful Dead, do you think I would be able to put out all these soundboard masters? Right. You know, yeah, yeah. it's. It's, it's, you know, they wouldn't, you know, it's one of those things. Um, I worked for the Grateful Dead Sirius radio channel doing mastering of shows for them when they first launched. David Gans had hooked me up with that thing, but, you know, that, that stopped. There's been a lot of times they've, the, you know, I've been contacted by somebody saying, hey, we're putting out this Grateful Dead box set. Do you have a patch source? So, like, the, I think it's 5777. There's a real flip in, I want to say around and around. So that's that patch I had. Um, I sent them the patch and they liked it. And they asked if I if they can get the original tape. So I, I referred them to Matt Smith, who had the original tape, so they can do a high resolution transfer of it. So you know, like they contacted me for the October '78 Dick's picks to see if I had a patch for that brutal cut in Stella Blue from 102178, which I didn't, but. Apparently, Rob Eaton has one now. <laughs> I've never considered that that's the way these things go down. That you go around going, okay, who's got that patch who actually has one decent section that we need to, to put in? And by the way, Rob Eaton lived right down the street from me in Edwards, Colorado. He and I would have drinks all the time together at uh, the Crazy Mountain Brewery. Yeah. So shout out to Rob and, and Crazy Mountain. Really good guy. He's a, he's a great guy. He's, he's truly, truly a great guy. Um, yeah, it's, you know, Bob Menke is a person who has a lot of tapes. That they, I know they check with, and the thing is, they know a lot of the band members and the crew members, or the family, or the office people, or the management. A lot of their tapes have worked their way back to me, you know. And like the sound company, you know, Don Pearson from Ultrasound, you know, I, like I said, there was thousands of Grateful Dead cassette masters in there, and uh, I offered them back to the vault after I was done transferring them. I contacted David Lemieux and I told them, here's the list of the videos. Here's a list of the audio stuff and the digital stuff and the other things. And, and they had just gotten the Betty reels back. Thanks to Rob Eaton, you know, like within the previous year. And they were like, so focused on that. They, they didn't care at all about the stuff I had. So I just put it all out, you know, cause it needed to be done. That, that's a, a great segue uh, into our next audio clip, Dan Humiston, because, uh, 
you know, Bob Menke, I think, was the original recording of what we're listening to today before you remastered this one. And uh, it kind of coinciding with the final day of, uh, of Dead & Co. tour today, I was kind of thinking to myself, how many different people have actually played with this band? And how many different people have been involved with this band? You just named a whole bunch of people on the sound side. So let's, let's get a quick clip of uh, playing in the band reprise. Prizes from that era because the um, the sort of the really mellow slow jam that would lead into it before they came back in was like a build up of like two or three minutes before they actually popped it back in to play the reprise and I thought that was a uh, you know, in later years it basically was just come thundering back in without really much of a build but in the uh, in seventy six was a much much slower build up to the reprise I love the reprise that's such a you know good part of it all and uh, you know as I tell my kids there was a play prize before there was a tweet prize so yeah uh, absolutely that's what i i try to tell them but <laughs> right i mean i love fish I, i'm gonna go see him in chicago just just got Me my too. tickets so oh you'll be here great well we'll have to hook up then. i'm tape i'm taping the whole tour i'm taping the garden shows i'm taping dicks and i'm taping the whole fall tour excellent 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 well good we'll love to see you in chicago that'll be fun I don't. So, so let, let's talk about Dead & Co. Uh, final night tonight of, of this tour. You know, I, I don't think any of us here think this is the last Dead & Co. show, but you know, this is the, the official end of an era, uh, and there's a lot of uh, speculation on what the final tune's going to be. Um, you know, I, I'll put it out there that I, I think Ripple's probably the most appropriate, but I don't know what your thoughts are on, on what they're closing with. But you know, is this band going to keep playing together? Is this band, you know, like Jay Lane seems to have stepped in where Bill left off, and... Uh, <laughs> You know, what do we think is happening here? And, and, and what do you think the uh, the final song will be tonight? Yeah, I, I, I think they're definitely going to play more shows. I mean, they didn't say it's the final show. They said it's the final tour, right? And like Mickey said, I, this isn't the final anything. But I I mean, I can't see. I, I understand these guys are old. We're old, but these guys are older than us. And I, I understand that, but I can't see them stopping. I mean, this is... Telling Mickey Hart to stop drumming, you know, for for you know live audiences, I can't see that. Or Bob Weir to stop, you know. I I have a feeling we'll be seeing more local stuff, like how Phil does a lot of that Terrapin Crossroads type stuff. You know, you know, I have a feeling there'll be a lot more of that. Maybe some Warfield stuff, which would be nice. But um, I I I got a prediction about what I think the final final thing might be. You know, and it was uh, I I mean. I thought like a, a, a ripple, not fade away, not fade away, ripple, something like that. But I was just talking about these other songs I was thinking that, you know, would be so great for the, for this final show, stuff like New Potato Caboose, some of the really old stuff, you know, Alligator, <laughs> you know? Viola Lee. 
that would really be sticking it to Phil, though, to play New Potato Caboose, right? I mean, I, I was thinking they would just do Box of Rain again. They've already got experience with that one. Yeah. Except hard, hard yeah. to do Box without Phil there, right? I mean, like, I, I was thinking the same thing, yeah. Yeah, well, what about... It's hard. They could do Attics, though. There wasn't that, that's the last one they played at Soldier Field in the reunion shows. It was. Yep. It was, yeah. Uh, and Box, obviously, was the last one they played in 95, um, you know, for uh, for the final Grateful Dead show. Yeah. But, you know, kind of kind of think where they are now. The other thing I was thinking would be the weight, because it allows all of them to sing. That's a good point. And, uh, That's a, a good one. Yeah. Well, the real question is who's going to be on stage with them at that time, I think. Um, that is a good question. You know, that's a good question. That really is. That really is. Um, I, I don't know. If, I don't think there'll be any guests. I really don't. Well, the only guest they've had this whole tour is Dave Matthews for four tunes, right? Well, yeah. Pretty big. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that, that's, that's coming in playing hard. I like nothing wrong with that. I've listened to that stuff. That's pretty cool stuff. Definitely is. But, you know, look, I never thought Dead & Co. was going to last more than two years, much less eight. You know, the fact that we're still doing this uh, is pretty amazing to me. The fact that, you know, we actually have had, you know, three guys stay until the, the this tour, you know, and losing, losing Billy was, you know, kind of a blow, but. Uh, yeah, Charlie, I got to ask you about that. Creative differences. They played together for 50 years. This is their sixth or seventh year of playing as Dead & Co. They announced this is the final tour, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, there's creative differences? Yeah, I don't believe the creative differences thing. Um, you know, I've heard people say things that I don't know if they're true, so I would hate to even repeat them as speculation. Okay. But, you know, um, you know, I, 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 I don't know. I don't know. I just, I'm shocked by it, quite honestly. You know, the guys have lasted so many years. Right. And it's like, now, now you're going to do it, you know. And then what, a few weeks later, he was playing with Billy and the Kids down in New Orleans, right, yeah. either right before or right after Dead & Co. played. He's healthy. I was down there for the, I was down there for the Kim Ock shows and everybody was talking um, about how great Billy's show was, you know. Yeah, I mean, that, that's what I mean. We obviously knew that it wasn't for health reasons because he was out there playing. Right. It's the only time I, I, I've been friends with Stephanie Kreutzman for a long time. It's the only time I'm tempted to call Stephanie. But, like, I haven't spoken to her in four years. I'm not going to call up, like, hey, how you been? Like, what's up with your father-in-law? <laughs> you know, so, so I kind of let that one be, hoping that um, hoping that uh, it would come out. But, uh, you know, either way, I hope, I hope Billy's doing well. And, and speaking of people doing well, you know, um, shout out, I think, to our friend Stanley Mouse, who uh, has recently suffered a stroke. Yeah. And, you know, devastating to the community for someone. Any any time you hear of uh, someone in the community being sick or, or you know, sort of that Black Peter moment of uh, of you know everyone needing to go run and see, but uh, but much love and uh, affection to Stanley Mouse. Go check out his artwork if you don't know who we're talking about. Yeah, you'll recognize it right away. Yeah, I mean, of, of that that crew, I think Rick Griffin, Stanley, uh, you know, Kelly, those guys, uh, those guys did so much cool stuff in the late sixties, and I don't think there'd be a psychedelic movement without those guys, and I don't think the Grateful Dead would gained gotten the same notoriety and it wasn't just the Grateful Dead, but a lot of uh, the psychedelic artists, of the late 1960s, early seventies, owe a huge debt to the artwork of, uh, of that school of, um, of art. So, you know, I really truly hope that, uh, that Stanley pulls through and is, uh, is back doing art again. Yeah. We've all, we've all had those posters, you know, those Stanley mouse posters and the mouse Kelly. So yeah, all that stuff is just, everybody's uh, getting old, man. Yeah. It happens even to the Grateful Dead. Hard to believe, but true. You know, I, I sometimes wonder if Jerry were still alive, what would they be playing? What would what what songs would would have made their way back? You know, and you know what's crazy about that, Charlie, is I think about it now that if they were still playing, like 
the days between would be a 28 or 29 year old song at this point, you know, and we still think of that as being like sort of the last of the, of the new songs. And, and like I joke about with Larry all the time that, you know, the end of the Grateful Dead was really just mid career now for the rest of those artists, you know, for Mickey, that was like, you know, he's played 30 years after 30 years before it wasn't, you know, we always think of that as the end 95 is the end for those guys as musicians. They think about it like, yeah, man, that was midway through my career. And so uh, that's crazy, man. It is totally crazy. But think yeah. about right that that Trey is what five already five or six years older than Jerry was when he died. Yeah, and he's going stronger than ever. I yep. mean, the, the, and, and and as a band, they've played forty years together. They're already ten years further along almost than uh, than the Grateful Dead were when, when they stopped in ninety five. So I mean, like, I, I heard a rumor two days ago, which hopefully is now you know truly unconfirmed and and, and not true. But you know, there's like thing going around Twitter saying that widespread panic had called it quits you know, after 30 something years. And I was just like, there's no way that's true. And I fortunately went out there and scoured the internet and found nothing else to verify it. So I'm going to say that, you know, it's complete nonsense. Yeah. I think that's a fake thing. Yeah. You know, I, I had something I wanted to say about the days between, uh, thing. Um, back in 93, I was at Oakland Coliseum and I got in early the first night and of the February, February, yeah, February 93, I got in early the first night, got in super early the second night. And when I got in, um, I had the taping equipment with me and, uh, they were sound checking and they were playing, they played Lazy River Road and they were playing Days Between. And I'd never heard it because they had never played it. And, um, for a second, you know, I thought they were doing Mountains of the Moon because it has that kind of same sound in the beginning. So I'm like sitting there and Jerry starts singing Days Between and I got like tears in my eyes. This is so freaking beautiful. So I'm like slowly pulling out the microphones and the security comes up and just says, come on, man. You know, I'm a taper. You know, I had to try. I had to try. So right, I couldn't, I, I couldn't, couldn't record it, but I got to witness it. And then that night they debuted it. So it was one of those things that I got to see them play it before they played it live. And that's the only time that ever happened with the Grateful Dead where they played. I got to see them play something before it was live. And that was fe- February 93 at Oakland Coliseum, wasn't it, for, uh, yep. for uh, Chinese New Year? Yep. The, no, that was the Mardi Gras. Yeah. Yep. Was it as beautiful when they played it live as it was when they were practicing it? You know, I hate to say it. I had a backstage pass and I spent a lot of the first set of that show. I spent a lot of time that night uh, backstage playing playing pinball, eating food, watching Saturday Night Live and doing drugs I shouldn't have been doing. And I was running back and forth and I was like a kid in a candy store. And I, I mean, I saw it live, but I was a little bit too uh, messed up to, you know, on certain drugs to really appreciate its full value. But I then went out to the East Coast and I saw it at, um, at NASA. And that was, that was really just, that really, you know, I really got it then. I saw that whole East Coast 93 uh, spring tour on the East Coast. I, I missed the uh, the shows in um, in Oakland, but then I caught the Cal Expos, the, the Shorelines, the Vegases, and then the whole East Coast March tour. Yeah. So I got like, of the first days between, I think I caught like 11 of the first 12. That's funny. I, I saw 44 shows that year. And the crazy part is, is the shows that I missed were the ones, you know, I live in San Francisco. The ones I missed were most of the, you know, local shows because I'd come home from tour and I'd go off on these, whatever, <laughs> you know, it was a different, different life back in the nineties. Well, should we talk any weed at all? Or today should just be a grateful dead day, Larry. It's uh, there's, there's times where we sort of forget that we've got another part of our show, but uh, there we go. So that's, there we go. The 
So obviously, Charlie, you uh, you certainly haven't sm- stopped smoking weed, and the big colas are always a nice thing to look at. Uh, well done, my man. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I think we should because we, we have some interesting things. We do have one or two interesting things to talk about. Dan? Yeah, I had, uh, you know, I, I had uh, I had stopped for a little while, for about 12 years or so, where I was completely clean of everything. And um, then I just started smoking pot again because it just – it it doesn't affect my recovery of other things in any way. I haven't had a drink since uh, December thirty first, nineteen ninety six, and nice. um, you know, pot doesn't interfere with my life like other sure. drugs have. So I I you know, I have no problem smoking it. And we are all living in California. It's you know, it's just so. Yeah, we're, we're all strong crazy. believers. All believers that alcohol is by far the more dangerous drug. I don't think there's any question about that at all. So it's uh, oh yeah, yeah. We, we spend our, our yeah. lives advocating for cannabis and uh, for responsible cannabis <laughs> use, and that you know it's not a gateway. We yes, every sir. dumb thing I've ever done in my life has started with booze. It hasn't started with weed. Everything that I and my my problem wasn't with alcohol. My problem was that after I had to a drink or so, I needed cocaine, and when right. the cocaine yeah. ran out, I needed more cocaine or money to get more cocaine, and and then that led to other things, which led to other things but none of it ever had anything to do with me smoking pot yeah it's, and it's, it's, you know two scotches and you're like let's get an eight bottle it'll last all night and like 20 minutes later you're like let's get another eight bottle it'll last all night dude it's <laughs> you know it's, it's just you know once you once you yeah because you know then you're up and you need something to come down yeah it was just it was like i said you know the 90s were a bit different for me you know i actually missed the last year of the grateful dead um, I saw, like I said, I saw 44 shows in 1993, 1994, I saw four shows and in 1995, I saw none because I live like right outside the front door of the place I was living was it was the entrance to the BART station. All I had to do was just walk outside, get on the BART and then I'd be at Oakland Coliseum. And that was the difference between me and Jerry. He could at least get to Oakland Coliseum in his condition, whereas in I was just, yeah, Not doing it. it was pretty bad. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the fact that I'm still here talking about it is pretty shocking, but okay. yeah. Well, that's wonderful. We're glad to have you here. You know, well, yeah. not, Cause you're, you know, all your memories are uh, quite, uh, quite diverse for the deadheads of the world. and would be a shame to lose it. Yeah. Have you ever written a book or thought about it? You know, there was somebody who was going to help me do that. And, you know, my whole thing is, if um if I put it in writing, then I I would you can't you can't go back and and not not that you can't go back and change, but you can't go back and add things or or, or explain why there's just so many reasons you know and yeah um you know I would I would love for someone to work with me on that at some point in my life, but the thing I want to do the most is um. I want to pass on the knowledge that I have through either mixing live sound or just with the, what I do with the recordings or all the stuff that I've learned. I would love to share the information with people, you know, and, uh, it, it, it's a, it'll be a lost art, right? I mean, these days you can record anything, you know, with given the modern equipment that they have, but to really understand the art. And I mean, let me ask you this, when you guys would be on tour taping, was there like kind of an understanding among the group of tapers or like who had what spots, no matter where you were, one guy got to be closer to the soundboard, one guy would be up here or was it just always first come first serve? It was first come first serve. Like, you know, what we used to do at uh, Oakland or Charlotte or in any venue where it was, you know, cause 99% actually it was always a GA taper section, unless you had um, 
the uh, floor on the arenas on the East Coast. Sometimes they would be reserved. But then that's that's another story, man. If taper sets up in your seat and you're not there, then you know they're not gonna they're not gonna move for you in New York. They're gonna send you away. But right. but what I would do is my taper partner. He had a backpack with all the gear, the microphones, the cables, the recorder, and I had to stand. And I would be in the front of the line, and when the door would open, I would have nothing to search. I'd have a stand, and they would take my ticket, and I would just run. So by the time the tapers are starting to work their way in there, I'm sitting front row, center, you know, at the stand already set up. And you just... Your partner's casually waltzes in, takes his time, starts screwing things together. <laughs> casually great. waltzes in. We, uh, yeah, I lived two blocks from the Warfield. And so we went in December 89 and uh, we did the Garcia Warfield shows. And we just, you know, we snuck this stuff in. But we were pretty open about it when we got in. We didn't have a stand or anything, but we were. Were you south of market? Um, I was Tenderloin. You were. Yeah. Tenderloin, right, right. Yeah, I did south of market at one point, but I was south of market in the land of ruin. Yeah, um, I was on sixth at one point. I had apartments on sixth, but that was another on sixth street. That's yeah, a, right, right by the uh, the Thunderbird Motel. Yeah, that's another story. But um, <laughs> but no, so we would we we were pretty open about our taping there for that run. But when we came back for in February 1990, like Jerry played there every month, you know, and February, March, April, and he skipped a month, came back in June, skipped a month, came back in August, you know, it was like, and like in 91, it was January, February, March, April, May, you know, anywhere from three to five nights. And I, we were, I was stealthing all of them, but we showed up one night in the beginning of the 1990 run and they had the mobile recording truck on the side of the venue. And we were just like, uh oh. They're multi-tracking, which means there's going to be a live album, which means there's going to be people actively hunting us down. Who's taping? And um, we got I got busted in the middle of the first set the first night, and I and we taped the other two nights, and uh, then we came back for the next run, and we couldn't get our D five in anymore, so we ran back to the apartment, dropped it off, and right next to the Warfields an electronics store, we walked in, we bought a D six. You can get a D six in anywhere, you know, and. Uh, it was just classic how we got used to get the stuff in, but and they used to say to me, "We know you got this stuff. We know somewhere that you're taping. We can't catch you." And it's uh, just, Garcia did allow taping the way the dead did. He didn't care. It was more. I was always told it was a Steve Parrish decision that you know, it it, it used to be um, if you got the stuff in, you were okay. Like in the early mid eighties, you know. But then it was kind of it was just no, it was just a different thing. And I don't know. It was just weird. Um, but yeah, I've, I've got stories on that. Uh, taping Garcia at the Warfield, man. I got like a million stories on that one. <laughs> that was quite the adventure. Wow. I bet. That was uh, my second home for about four years. I, I saw every Warfield show from 92 to 95. And uh, so I got to ask you, if you lived right there and you saw a lot of Warfields, were you uh, a Charleston devotee after the show? Would you go over to the Charleston? No, I would go back... Um, to the apartment and probably smoke crack or something stupid like that. I was fucked up or, or do blow or do blow or, you know, or get drunk or, you know, it just, yeah, I was, I was, you know, okay. Yeah. Yeah. It is what it is. You know, it is what it is. Well, it's the tent, the tenderloin does that to you. I can tell you that you're not the first person that lived in the loins that, uh, was hitting it hard in those years. Well, that last drink that I ever had on December 31st, 1996, I was at, I was at a hotel on 6th Street across from Market, across from the Warfield there. 
And um, it was it was New Year's Day, and I had no money, and it was raining, and I got kicked out of the. I had a twenty dollar room. It was a mattress on a floor and a broken window and a blanket. It was the it was the bottom of the barrel. They didn't get any worse than this, and um, and getting kicked out of there for you know, yeah, that was my that was my uh, rock bottom. Okay. You know, good for you, man. Made made some decisions and and acted real quickly on them. But yep, which sometimes is all you have to do is realize like that that's it. I'm done. If I don't pull it together now, like I'm I'm dead next week. Yep, yep, which, yep. Uh, yep. Yeah. It was pretty bad. Well, but. as Larry said, man, stoked that you're uh, stoked you're still with us because everything you've done since then is nothing short of spectacular, man. So uh, just like kudos to you. I'm really trying to give back to the community. I'm, I really appreciate that. I really want to give back to the community because I felt like I was draining the energy and the life out of everything around me. And I was not a positive person, you know, um, just due to my addiction. And I just kind of really wanted to make up for all that negative shit that, that happened. You know, and, and we all love music. And honestly, it's, I mean, I kind of started doing it for me. Like I started getting these tapes and be like, okay, great. I can have these great copies. And then I started saying, hey, is it okay if I release some of these? And sometimes it's like, I don't care what you do. And sometimes it's no answer because if they give me permission, then they've kind of, if you give permission in an email and you've set policy, because there you says in this email that it's okay to do this thing, which means everyone can now do it. And so a lot of times they would just not respond to me. <laughs> so it's, you know, I've, I've had a few conversations with some of the people from GDP or even David Lemire or anybody. It's just like, it was me sending them an email and I didn't get a response and that's perfect. That's all I, you know. Right. I asked. So, yeah. So I asked. So how'd you get the gig with, uh, with Kimok? I mean, cause Kimok obviously, I, mean, I shouldn't say obviously, but reputationally Kimok is a, is kind of a prickly person to, uh, to work with. And you know, the, a lot of people are like you. It's you know what? It's he's the nicest freaking guy. He's the only artist that I've ever worked with in my decades long career that will stand up for his crew. Um, if I'm at a venue and the venue wants to charge me fifty bucks for a board feed, he won't start until they give me the board feed. He'll he'll say, "Show me in the contract where it says," and he'll say, "You know, it's he, he will actually." I've had other bands be like, "Deal with it. We don't care." If you can't do it, then don't record for us. You know, it's like one of those things. And he he told me that like when he was in the in the other ones, he used to ride on the bus with the crew, not the band. He loves his crew so much. He's the nicest freaking guy. And and it says he used to um, sit facing the band instead, of, you know, with his back to the crowd, just for whatever reason. And people just took it in a, in, a, in the absolute wrong way. And and let me just dispel the the heroin thing. That's just never happened. That's just not a not even a thing. People thought he was because he's a, a quiet, shy stoner, whatever. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So so that's my personal experience with him. I've, I've you know had the chance to interact with him quite a bit when I've been running point on festivals that he's been playing at, and I've been sort of his like artist relations like liaison. And my experience is he's he's always really nice, but he, I also get the sense that like. He's kind of like he wants to get from point A to point B with a lot of without a lot of chit chat in between, unless like you're a person he really wants to talk to. It, that you know what that's so that's so it. It's like you know, 
it's, can you take care of this or do I need to do this? And it's not in a bad way. It's like when we go out to eat and the check comes, it's like, you guys got this or should I cover it? And it's not, do we have to, let's not sit around for 10 minutes and discuss it. Let's just do it, you know? And, and it's a positive thing. And, you know, he, he, uh, okay. Me and Ariel started following Steve Kimmock together. And in 2002, we went to every show. Every show for a whole year. The only shows that I missed were Japan for four nights. Okay. This was Steve Kimmock band. And uh, and it was Alfonso Johnson was on bass and Rodney Holmes was on drums. And it was just the most amazing shit ever. And I mean, I lived in San Francisco. They were playing a 75-minute festival set outside of Atlanta. And I flew to Atlanta for this set just to be there. And, you know, one day Steve called me up. Called, actually, he called me and Ariel, and we were freaking out. Kimmock's calling us up. He's like, we want to, we love this recording you made. We want, we want to make this our live album, you know, an actual album out of it. And is it okay? And I was like, oh, my gosh. So show up every night. Eventually, the ch- you're going to start getting paid. It's one of those things. So every night we were there, and I became his recording engineer, his sound guy, his road manager, his driver. I mean, stage crew, any anything, whatever's needed. Whatever, whatever capacity, and plus I've been his archivist for 22 years now, but whatever capacity they need me is how I'm there, but I'm always recording. I never show up without the mics and the recorder. So it's recording and whatever else needs to be done. Count, help count in the merch, because I love counting stuff. I'm a numbers guy, <laughs> you know? So, 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 so I think Larry and I have said this a lot with some of our guests on this show, like, we get done with the taping a show. And we're like, that was the coolest guy in the world. <laughs> you know, like you've, you've got, you've done so many fun things in this industry and with really, really fun people. And what a unique uh, perspective and uh, amazing way to, um, to be able to recount everything that's gone on, you know, in the last like 30 years. But as I said, like nothing speaks greater than kind of the volume of work you've put out for the rest of us to enjoy. So it's just, you know, again, a lot of reverence here uh, on this side of the, uh, on this side of the video feed of, you know, I hope you keep doing it, man. Like, cause the, uh, the, the community needs you. It's fun, dude. I just, I'm just having fun. You know, we, we were on rhythm devils tour. We were staying at this bed and breakfast in Vermont between rehearsal on rehearsal days. And we, um, after one rehearsal and everyone back to their rooms, me and Kimok were in the lobby and there was this tall mannequin with like the, sh- the shirt and the sweater and the golf club. Cause I mean, we're in a bed and breakfast in Vermont. So it was that whole look. So I looked at Steve, he looked at me, we didn't even need to say anything. We put this thing on the luggage cart and we wheeled it to Mickey Hart's room and we put it right in front of his door, knocked on the door and just took off. And it's just, um, it's just have fun, man. It's just whatever you're going to do, just have fun doing it, you know? And uh, that's one thing I like about Steve is he doesn't, he's never... He's never tried to change me. He's tried to teach me and train me. And if there's somebody there who has worked with him in the past who he thinks can teach me something, he'll bring me over them and he'll introduce me to them and just let it let the conversation happen. Because I'm I'm like I'm so eager to learn anything about you know uh, with this working with sound and audio and doing live sound. I love recording, and I'm a, I'm a I'm a recording engineer. First and foremost, but my happy place is doing sound for Kimok. That is just like one of the most fun things ever. Great place to be, you know. That's really and great. I mean, he he had a great band before the pandemic, and um, 
that, that kind of threw, that just screwed up so many things for the, for the music industry. And that was so sad. All these bands, like, you know, what are you going to do? Because you can't tour. And, but, um, and we lost, we lost a couple of band members to Dead and Company. <laughs> so, you know. That happens too. Maybe, maybe he'll get O'Teal and Jeff back. But no, Steve's now playing in O'Teal's band, which I think is fantastic. I love O'Teal. He's one of the nicest guys. He's my, out of any bass player I've ever mixed, he was my favorite. It's like, you seriously, you don't need to do anything except turn up the volume. I, it's just, that, that tone he has is so beautiful. He's great. I loved him with the Almond Brothers, love him with Dead & Co., love him everywhere he shows up. I never saw him with the Almond Brothers. I've heard I've heard the recordings, but I never got to see him. I, I loved him with uh, with Like a Road at the Warfield. Yeah. You know, that was such a, a fun lineup, the uh, yeah. sort of the Garcia birthday band. That, that looked like fun. If I had lived in San Francisco, I would have been there. I, I... I recorded over 300 shows in San Francisco in 2001 when I lived there, you know, and um, I was sober. I was sober a few years and I was just every night going to see somebody and taping, you know, and uh, there's no, there's no shortage of music there. That's for sure. Well, the good news for me, Larry, is that uh, Charlie lives right down the street from me in San Diego. So when I get back out to the West coast. I'm quite certain we'll bump into each other at the belly up or some other venues uh, around the area. For sure, but, bro. But it sounds like uh, it sounds like you might get a chance to uh, meet him in person for uh, for fish in Chicago. So uh, I love you know, it. Look, part of the great I'm thing about town. part of the great thing about us doing this show, besides uh, you know the fact we just get to nerd out about the Grateful Dead for an hour every every Wednesday, is uh, the people we have gotten to meet and the, how many people we've actually kept in touch with afterwards. Whether it's Rob Bleedstein or David Gans or some of the other ones we've mentioned, but uh, but it's been a really really unique way to sort of you know meet new friends uh, on our on you know this very limited venue of uh of a small audience podcast we have but you know thank you yeah david gans is a great guy you know david gans is responsible for um very nice helping me i mean he introduced me to a lot of people and it's like i don't know how to phrase it properly but it's like you know he's responsible for introducing me to a lot of people who got me a lot of tapes over the years and you know david gans is contribution to our scene is just you know immeasurable it's just so so unbelievably big and uh we're, we're lucky to have him and it's such an understated way and he's the most humble and gracious person in every possible way the guy's just chill laid back and really kind to everyone that he comes in contact with such a nice yeah, guy we're, 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 we're such very nice big fans guy. Uh, so, hey, Charlie, you've been super, super gracious with your time today, man. And obviously, you know, we'd love to have you back. Anytime you want to spend another hour with us, you know, you've got carte blanche and open invite to come back and share more stories. And, so. That would that would be great. I would love to, you know, come back sometime. We could talk set list patterns and discuss, you know, we can do do a retrospect, look back at the Dead & Company tour and look back and now after it's all done. And uh, So, Larry, before you sign off, you didn't give your prediction for what you think the final tune is going to be. Yeah, I you know I I they're 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 just such a uh, the stuff they pull out of nowhere, right? And, and look, the, the interesting thing about Dead and Co is that you know set list order means very little to them, and right and and songs just pop up everywhere throughout the set, uh, which is kind of cool because it it keeps it you know a little more unpredictable. Um, but in that regard, it, it it's more a stab in the dark. I mean, it seems that the way that they've been you know ending their really big shows has been with Ripple. Um, you know, if, uh, that seems to be a good way to go, but I, you know, they could certainly do addicts again. I love addicts. Um, I don't think that they would do box of rain, but 
Bobby has a sense of humor. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. Love Bobby. Yeah. Love Bobby. Sure. Absolutely. He's, he's carried the mantle very nicely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love during, during wow. the early eighties, freaking rock star, Bobby, man. I just, I just love that shit. Just, you know, yeah. <laughs> I can't, I can't sing not fade away. Get to the Cadillac lyric without jumping forward and throwing my arms. We up. were at the scope in 82 and I was leaning on the rail right in front of Bobby dosed and he just, you know, they just they stopped and screamed. I want to tell you how it's going to be, and he just pointed right down at me and the and the people right next to me. He looked right at us, and we just lost our freaking mind. And that's when he was pointing over there and pointing over there and just pointing right down. Yeah, that sure. was, that was uh, absolutely. Yeah, always good fun, no doubt about yeah. it. Right okay, on. guys. Well, Rob, great to have you back on the show this week. We look forward to having you back as much as we can. Um, Charlie, thank you again. This was a. Uh, a real treat for us. Uh, you know, we, we, Rob and I are self-styled, you know, nerd heads when it comes to the Grateful Dead. And we, we love meeting others of our ilk, uh, especially those that are actually accomplished, you know, to the degree that you are with the uh, with the Grateful Dead and the family and, and all of that stuff. And it uh, it just makes me very happy to know that there's guys like you out there who, uh, you know, who get to be part of all of this and bring it to the rest of us who never quite got our foot in the door. But Love going every time we can. Right on. So it's all very cool. I look forward to coming back sometime and doing it again. Please. Uh, and I'll sign up by saying, you know, thank you again. And uh, uh, it'd be remiss not to do the cliche thing based on the show that I chose to play. But uh, I'm going to play us off with a, a song that Charlie, I'm sure, is shaking his head, go, oh, don't do it. But but I, but I just have to. <laughs> no. um, you know, but, I just uh, realized it. <laughs> but at the, end of, at the end of the show, you know, it's. It's time to end it, so go on home. Your mama's calling you, my man. Right on, brother. All right. Thanks, guys. Bye. Very good. Everyone, have a great show. Have a good week. Be safe. Enjoy your cannabis responsibly. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, it's Justin Benton, host of the Miracle Plant Podcast, where we discuss this miracle plant that goes by so many names and how it's helping people in so many extraordinary ways. So if you love this plant and you want to hear a story that tugs on those heartstrings and learn more about this plant, then head on over to the Miracle Plant Podcast. You'll be glad you did. 